Well, the first meeting I had with him, Brian uh, Epstein was supposed to bring them to my office in London, and he showed up on time, but the Beatles, they didn't come. Brian came, and he apologized. He said, I'm afraid uh, we'll have to do it some other time, but they're over at uh, EMI Studios at Abbey Road in on a session that another group that Brian had managed, so I have to go over there to meet them. So I said, well, can I go with you? And he said, certainly. So we jumped in a taxi, and he said, well, let's stop by their apartment here in London first. And sure enough, they all came down looking for a taxi. So they jumped into our taxi, and you know London taxis are only for four, so there are six of us in there. And I thought I was in the middle of a Marx Brothers movie. Um, every time the taxi stopped, they'd grab all the newspapers that had Beatle headlines, which they did. And I asked the Beatles, when could we start filming? And John opened up his little diary and he said, well, we're going to the Bahamas to, for a holiday. And then in February, he said, we're going to go to your country. We're going to go to New York and do something called the Ed Sullivan Show. And I said, well, that'll be fine while you're in the uh, Bahamas write at least six new songs for our picture. And John said, well, what's the film about? And I said, I don't know. We haven't got a writer yet. And he said, well, what kind of songs do we write? And I said, Beatles songs. I don't know, two up-tempo, two ballads. I don't know, write six new Beatles songs. And John said, you have a director in mind? I said, yes, another American over here named Richard Lester. And he said, what has he done? And I said, well, he's done some very good television stuff with the Goons. Now, the Goons were uh, an English comedy group that predated the uh, Monty Python group, and Dick had directed their television, and I knew that the Beatles were goon fans. So when I said Dick Lester, they said, well, get him. And that's how it all started. This week's film that was fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. All right, so we are back. While we're waiting on Let It Be in the Get Back book, we decided to uh, go back to the first Beatles film, which actually has some similarities to Let It Be in its own way. Beatles traveling around, trying to find a place, and then doing a performance at the end of the film. That could describe both of them. <laughs> right. There is a, an odd kind of symmetry there. A Hard Day's Night dates back to the beginnings of television. Richard Lester was actually a director in American TV in the very early 50s. Right. Uh, he, he had a TV show, I think, in Britain. You know, he was one of those guys that was running around doing everything for like from 50 to 53, which really would have been just when people were starting to get television in their homes here in the States. Right. And then right. so he was a young man, and then uh, he decided to do what many young men did after the war and go and see Europe. I somehow felt that a huge release when I left America. I was only 22. So he traveled around, and he ended up in London. And again, because he's a guy who knew what he was doing, they hired him to produce TV. You know, I know that Britain, like a lot of countries, has a thing about you have to have a special talent because they don't want immigrants to take away jobs from Englishmen. And so apparently, because he stayed, I guess Dick Lester could do some things that uh, the English couldn't. So, I mean, within a year of when he showed up in London, they gave him his own variety show. Right. It was the Dick Lester variety <laughs> show. Although, you know, you have to wonder... 
did anybody know who Dick Lester was? It's like <laughs> they all come from somewhere, you know. It's a new medium, and so if you're on TV, it's because someone in authority felt like you should be there. With that background, you know, the, the scenes at the end of Hard Day's Night actually make some sense. He knew precisely what that world looked like. Yes, the whole character of Victor Spinetti as the TV director, Dick Lester knew that character very well, the whole look. Yeah, the sweater had to come from somewhere. <laughs> I'm willing to bet there was somebody that he knew, I'm going to turn that guy into a character someday. Right. Somebody did it to him. <laughs> it was during that period of time that Lester hooked up with Peter Sellers. And I was very fortunate that I met Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan within the first year that I was here. You really get the view that British show business was a tight family. People keep going in and out of this story. So-and-so knew so-and-so, you know. That led to the film that we all know about, uh, the running, jumping, standing still film. Right. Peter Sellers, you've got George Martin involved with him, and now Dick Lester, and that's all pre-Beatles. And that would also lead to, to David Frost, and that was the week that was, you know, this whole burgeoning British comedy scene. Yeah, there's kind of a quick march to Monty Python. And you can see the beginnings of that in the surreal nature of, of what comes up in Hard Day's Night. Right. I mean, help more so, Python stole a number of things right out of help, but the feeling, the sort of anarchic ethos is out of Hard Day's Night. Yeah, for sure. My first film... Uh, was a short film which I made in 1959 called The Running, Jumping and Standing Still film with Peter Sellers which was an 11 minute film made with our own camera and our own money and, our, and, and ourselves acting in it and I did the music for it and it was a very very personal simple film we did one take of everything that we did and, and every foot of film that we shot apart from number boards was put together and made a film and it ran 11 minutes and we said well, this film shall run 11 minutes and that, that term on those terms it was successful because we didn't throw anything away. And we didn't honestly make it to have it shown. We made it for ourselves to, because of the joy of filmmaking. So do you like the running, jumping, standing still film? Uh, it, <laughs> parts of it are interesting. It hasn't aged well. How very polite of you. It's a comedy style that's very antiquated. Well, but you can also sort of see how that then became the the Beatles playing in the field, the Can't Buy Me Love sequence. Right. Although the Ruddles do a better recreation <laughs> of running, jumping, standing still than the Beatles do anywhere in Hard Day's Night. <laughs> the business with the tree. <laughs> Dick Lester kind of cut his teeth on that. One of those magical things. He was the perfect director for this kind of film. And then also during that time... Dick Lester had hired Alan Owen. Oh, you can always tell a man by the company he keeps. Oh, you're right there, Mr. Morgan. You can always tell a man by the company he keeps. Well, you've got yours, and I've got mine. Only mine's gear! Why do they all know Maggie? Why do they love us so? No Judy holds a candle up to her. And mister, if you've missed darling Maggie off your list, you're not half the man you thought you were. Oh, Maggie, Maggie May, pack your bag and come away, and we'll do the things we never did before. Loving you is so sublime, charge me double overtime, and you'll never walk down Line Street anymore. And Alan Owen would then go on to make uh, No Trams to Lime Street, which was a, a Liverpool-oriented film. The story is that it was that he could write that realistic Liverpool dialogue. The Beatles themselves had seen the No Trams to Lime Street, and it's like, okay, he gets Liverpool. And, of course, he, he got Liverpool because he was a Liverpoolian. <laughs> right. Then the next sort of major piece which would lead to Hard Day's Night was Steptoe and Son, the Wilford Bramble series. And it was a, a big series. It debuted in, on the 7th of June, 1962. Right, and I think they did a, a season right before the filming of A Hard Day's Night. The third season went all the way through the 18th of February. Then they did a fourth season in 65, and then they took five years off in the way that only British television can. <laughs> right. Uh, but we're, we're starting to catch on now. <laughs> Q 
cancel, start back up, cancel. They were doing the HBO thing long before Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the film itself says several things in Britain that it does in the United States. And it's a, kind of important for one of the jokes to know that Wilford Bramble played a man who was frequently referred to as a dirty old man. Just look at that bump! Oh, you dirty old man! Hi, Jack, so to fix it, Harold. Now, I've seen enough of Steptoe that I don't know that sort of what we think of as a dirty old man, which tends to have somewhat more sexual connotations, was necessarily the way that they were thinking of it. It's not the character from Laugh-In, you know, Artie Johnson. Yeah, the, the, you know. exactly. But it was that, the juxtaposition of, he's very clean, and that was playing off that. The series was so popular that the British kids would know what was going on. It just didn't play the same way in the United States. I mean, what everyone knows about Steptoe is that we were in Las Vegas watching a lounge act that fell in love with, uh, uh, with Red Fox. And happily at that moment, we were thinking about doing a, another uh, American version of a British show called Steptoe and Son. And uh, it became Sanford and Son. But Sanford and Son was a very different show. When Red Fox was kind of cast, he brought his style of comedy to it, which totally changed the character. The original Steptoe is much more of a British class comedy. And, and so they then proceed to have arguments over that. Well, it's kind of the Andy Cap character. You have put the milk in first again, haven't you? I always put the milk in first. Well, you shouldn't. I'm a proper way to do it. In the correct circles, the milk is always put in last. If I was to take you to Claridge's and if I saw you putting the milk in first, I'd know straight away you was lower class. I'd say, hello, he's a right myth, isn't he? <laughs> Men, milk in first. It just ain't done that. Just a little tip, try to remember in future. I like that at the very beginning, when you first see Paul, Bramble is there, dressed very smartly, and he's reading a men's magazine. <laughs> well, well, well. Of course, Paul's got a grandfather while he's been away, hasn't he? Stepped up. Pardon? Oh, oh, what's that? Oh, oh, is it out? Yeah. Have you heard about we that? We didn't know the news was out yet. Well, it's out, then. Oh, it's out. It took me until the laser disc came along to figure out exactly what it was because through all the VHS copies, you know, it was too dark and sort of too badly reproduced to have any idea what this magazine actually was. <laughs> Gee, there's a girl there. <laughs> and then finally, once I got to a copy that was good enough that I could actually see what was going on, it's like, oh, it says gentlemen only. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet that meant the same thing then that it does now. Probably, yeah. Probably. No, it's just a magazine selling cigars. Cravats. <laughs> um. So, so Steptoe started right about the same time that the Beatles were getting hooked up with George Martin, someone who had grown up lower class and put on this affected accent. Yes, and, and I think that that's... Uh, an important part of how the Beatles came across in England differently than they came across in the United States because there was a class aspect to this. It's more than just the authority figures. There is kind of the class thing. The difference of hearing an accent. Then the Liverpool accent is a little bit different like, like because you can't, you can't hardly understand us. If it's very broad, like, but say, uh, my Uncle Harry, like, has got a very strong Liverpool accent. It is the man from Capital. That's <laughs> him, yeah. That's the fella. Well, particularly when you look at, like, the first fella on the train. I shall call God. Right. British entertainment. Everybody had that sort of, you know, uh, everyone talked like George Martin. <laughs> <laughs> well, which was why he, he had to adopt the accent. He wasn't going to make it <laughs> in the business unless... He at least pretended to be one of them. That kind of class difference wasn't really the same here. We were going through kind of the end of the Second World War and then into the baby boomer era. 
the divisions in this country were much more racial divisions, I would say. Yes. Than sort of, you know, rich and poor. It's funny, you look at the modern era, we've become a much more class-conscious society in the United States. That's a monetary aspect. The classes tend to be separated by how much money you make. Yeah, we had the first season of Steptoe, and then we had the Beatles in the studio, and then we had Love Me Do come out. Right. So, you know, that, that was 62, and no one was quite busting down their door just yet. They were still struggling in the show business. So, okay, so the next up was the Please Please Me single, the hit. It hit the top of the charts, and as with all things in the early 1960s, oh, here's a band with one hit. Let's go ahead and get them into a, a film. <laughs> if you remember, there was a film within the film of, uh, of That Thing You Do, Right. Where the wonders end up is Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Well, I hope they had a good script. They tried to do the same thing with the Beatles. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I've never seen the film. I've read a synopsis. The film did actually get made with a band called the Embers. And did it come out pre-Beatlemania, or, or do we know? I think it came out late 63, you know, while Beatlemania was starting to really sort of take over the British Isles. Yeah, by the end of 63, they were the they were it. So the filmmakers just missed it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if they just missed it or if Brian had better taste. You know, one look at the script. Uh, to give you an idea, when the film finally made its appearance in the States, it was retitled to Gutter Girls. Gutter Girls, that's great. That sounds more like the uh, Joe Orton film in 67 it could very well have had uh, a fair bit in common i mean uh, from what i know about it it was uh, high school girls who were easy and went around showing their sexual exploits by carrying around these yellow teddy bears well wow that would have been great to open up with well she was just 17 <laughs> <laughs> had brian been that desperate <laughs> Would they have even allowed them to use their own music? <laughs> right. Or maybe the story we don't know is he was thinking about it and then went to John and Paul and said, write me a song for a film called Gutter Girls. <laughs> and Paul's like, I think I got it. And John goes, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a real explanation for that line. You know, the, the whole Beauty Queen bit was just yeah. uh, Paul trying to cover for, for what <laughs> right. was really going on. Brian said no to this project, and uh, apparently he at least showed the Beatles the script, and, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and unless John was like, so what do we do with the, the teenage girls? There is, please, please, sir, may I have one to surge with? <laughs> right. Or sniffing a bottle of Coke. Well, with Pepsi, but... <laughs> Still not certain that that was a direct reference. Indirect, maybe, but... <laughs> John is quoted at, uh, at the time as saying that the Beatles did not want to participate in a stereotypical exploitation picture. We'd made it clear to Brian that we weren't interested in one of those types of nobody-understands-our-music plots where the local dignitaries are trying to ban something as terrible as the Saturday Night Hop. Right, a stupid teenage exploitation film. Love Me Tender is passable as a movie but elvis never really had a good movie after that he really wanted to be an actor and his first films all have a certain integrity to them uh, well uh, jailhouse rock i go back and forth on whether the plot's any good but the singing and the dancing make up for it right it's very well choreographed and it works on that front and good songs but Colonel Parker never saw it as being art. <laughs> he saw it as a money-generating vehicle, and so that's how Elvis ended up making dozens of movies that are pretty forgettable. Our story is about music. Not the music of long ago, but the music that expresses the culture, the refinement, and the polite grace of the present day. Yeah, Girl Can't Help It was a little bit different in that front. It was. I, I think it's definitely a favorite of McCartney's. He's mentioned it several times, and they 
split up the recording of the song Birthday so that they, they cut the backing tracks and then went to McCartney's house and watched the film and then came back and finished the vocal. Yeah, I think there was actually sort of a touch of what would go into Hard Day's Night in that the musical numbers are not just sort of shoved in there. Right. You know, most of the movies are people just kind of breaking into song and it sometimes comes off as kind of silly, I think. I don't think John in particular was a fan of the musical theater. I think that he was for something more natural. So we go back to our uh, chronology here. After they turned down the, the yellow teddy bears, For Me to You came out, and then She Loves You came out. And, and that had kind of secured their places. Well, at least they'll be around for a year. Right. But there was no indication that they were going to break in America. No. Yeah, you know, we're talking about August of 63. Right. They were cutting their second album. You know, the idea of doing a film was for the companies mainly about getting a soundtrack, perhaps, sell a bunch of records. Uh, Then in August of 63, that was actually when the the Australia and New Zealand tour got booked. I I guess the, the people who weren't the States were willing to listen. And it's like, okay, maybe we can get these guys over here and you know since they're big in britain maybe they'll have some success here that's what epstein was great at was kind of pushing this band and they kept hitting the mark so that then brings us to september which is really the the first time that ua united artists comes to brian and actually says okay let's do something Uh, we've been asked by united artists to to do a feature movie you know they said okay you know we'll give you a budget and we'll allow you to select some people and make this film i get a call from mike stewart mike was the man who was running you and united artists records and music publishing for me and he said i got a call from london from noel rogers who runs our publishing company in london and there's this rock group called the beatles and they're interested in making some rock and roll movies I said, what do they cost? He doesn't know exactly, maybe 60, 70,000 pounds. I said, do we get publishing? We can get some publishing. We get soundtrack albums? We get soundtrack albums. I said, if we can get those rights, there's nothing to lose because those rights will be worth something, even the movies aren't a hit. And you never know with these kind of things. So I approved a three-picture deal with this group called The Beatles that, of course, I'd never heard of. And that was all going to Walter Shenson. And he got involved because his daughter's... <laughs> Well, UA went to Shenson and said, we hear good things about these Beatles, that they're making inroads and that, you know, maybe we can make some money off of a film. Right. And so I guess what they were really thinking is they've got this deal in Australia and, you know, France, you know, maybe they'll hit in the States, maybe they won't, but we like enough of what we see that that we think we'll be able to make our money back. Right, and they, they weren't committing themselves to any great outlay. In fact, I believe the movie was made for less money than the first album of the Beatles created. Half a uh, million dollars for a motion picture, that's nothing. Right, and they hired basically a TV director. Exactly. So United Artists had authorized Shenson to go as high as 25%. Shenson came in, and, and when they got to an agreement, Brian said, well, we're, we, we won't take any less than 7.5%. <laughs> so you, at the time, was overjoyed. And unlike the folks over at Dick James, they did actually, after the film became a hit, raise that figure to 20%. Right. I, I would presume that there were better rates on help. <laughs> that 20% probably came about in, in part with their renegotiation for the other two films on this contract. Right. You know, another odd thing about that contract was that the rights of the film, after a certain period of time, reverted to uh, Walter Shinson. You know, that tells you just how much United Artists thought about this movie as something that people would want to look at any point in, you know, maybe 10 years from now. And I think it was just about 10 years. Oh, yeah, go ahead, take the rights. We don't care. <laughs> right. But the thing about that is what United Artists actually wanted out of the deal beyond that was the rights to a soundtrack album in the States. They did not have a contract for a soundtrack album in Britain. Well, they couldn't. 
because the Beatles were, were signed to Parlophone. They come out with an instrumental soundtrack album, but you know that's not what they wanted. <laughs> right. Someone still said, oh, well, they're, they're not big yet, but by the time we get this film made, enough of the craze will have migrated over to the States so that we can make some money off of a soundtrack album because the, the records are where the real money is, lies. Right. And, and it's important to note the songs that are on American Hard Day's Night are only the songs from the film. Yeah, there are seven or eight new numbers from a film we're making at the present time to be serious for a moment. You know, in Britain, the Hard Day's Night album has a second side, which are all Leonard McCartney songs. In the States, they went to Capitol. Capitol used a bunch of those songs for an album called Something New. And then there was also a weird agreement on the publishing that United Artists or, or Unart Music Corps would get some share of the publishing. U.S. publishing and British publishing and worldwide publishing are all different deals. Yes. I don't know they, whether they sold that share back to the Beatles or it just sort of went somewhere and no one ever really noticed. And we don't get the credit anymore on the, on the records, but we still get the check. Since I was buying the records at the time, aware of the Beatles, I can only remember seeing the Hard Day's Night album for a few years. After a while, it kind of disappeared again. Yeah, I, it, it came back out when Let It Be came out. The United Artists, there you go. Yeah, they may not have kept it in print. But then you have this contract, and you have a contract with Help. Help didn't have any of these. No, who knows? It still was a United Artists film. It's a corner which hasn't been investigated well enough. Mark... Hopefully the next book will cover this in enough detail that we can figure out what exactly is going on. <laughs> right. Fact is, we don't know everything. <laughs> and Mark may be the only one that does. Even then, he's willing to admit that he doesn't know everything. He likes paper. Follow the contracts. Figure out who does what. So he'll be able to know why the publishing of the songs... Changed or didn't change. Right. Then comes October, and this is when Alan Owen actually started trying to write a script. Right. Again, we have a quote from Alan Owen from around that period. Uh, I had a couple of false starts trying to write a fantasy film. Now, you know, fantasy, fantasy in what sense? Uh, Like Elvis fantasy, you think? Yeah, well, I think think he was just looking to, you know, what are we going to have these guys do? What are they? It wasn't just a, an automatic, well, let's do a, a, a thing on their lives. Would it be uh, dramatic or just strictly uh, wrapped around your singing? Oh, we don't know yet, really, what it's going to be like. I don't think we'll have to do an awful lot of acting. I think it'll be written around the sort of people that we are, and there'll be four characters in it, very like us. After looking through it, I quickly realized that nothing could compare with their own fantastic lies. Right. It's funny. One of the great things about the film is that it it has kind of a documentary feel to it. The camera angles and the black and white. By that time, a lot of your films were in color. Girl Can't Help It was in color. Right. As I was saying, this motion picture was photographed in the grandeur of Cinemascope and in gorgeous, lifelike color by Deluxe. Right. So once he decided, okay, you know, we're going to make this a quasi-documentary, you know, he went to Brian and, and Brian hooked them up for Owen to hang out with them for basically two days of their life. Right. And just see what was going on, you know, how it worked. Screaming girls. And- Madcap escapes. So the entire creative input as to what this movie should be and how to maximize the talents of this extraordinary group of young men came from Dick Lester... Alan Owen, and Walter Shenson. You look at the Maisel's documentary, while that wasn't what Owen was referring to, it's when they're on that train, that's sort of very similar stuff. <laughs> it really is. Of course, I didn't see that film for a long time. I didn't really know of its existence. But once I saw it, it, it is striking how there's a similarity to it. Madcap things uh, on a train. Well, especially, you know, all all that stuff where they're playing around with the Maisel's brothers and and doing slates and, you know, people coming up to them. And then, of course, there's that priceless bit with John and the little girl. Right. So, you know, at least from mid-63 to mid-64, that was a representation of what their lives were like. 
Owen said that uh, he asked John what their life was like. John said, well, you know, it's a train in a room and a car in a room and a room and a room. <laughs> it's a great quote. And it found its way into the film. So It did, but it, he gave it to uh, Paul's grandfather. They're, they're not exactly the same because John didn't mention the train. <laughs> well. Grandfather actually mentioned the train, so, you know. <laughs> right. You do have to make it fit in the film. But, you know, he kind of an idea of jumping in the limousines and being chased. I still wait for that moment when George takes a tumble. Well, I mean, again, that shows you the reality. That wasn't written into the script. No, no. You can tell. Well, he fell. <laughs> he fell pretty hard, too. Uh-huh. And John is laughing. What Owen had written into the script, one of the things that the Beatles just absolutely refused to do was uh, once Paul showed up, they were supposed to hop on the back of that truck and just start playing to stop the crowds. Yeah. And it's like, uh, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> right. That's kind of superhero stuff. <laughs> or again, it's the Elvis thing. You know, I'm going to hop on the table and start dancing and singing and everyone's going to pay attention to me. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the first song being Should Have Known Better in the baggage car was kind of the perfect way to do it. They're kind of playing, they're kind of not, but it's kind of an appropriate spot. Yeah, the film had been going for maybe... 10, 12 minutes at that point. Right. And Patty had been introduced. Subtly. And and again, it's this business of the classes that we didn't really recognize quite as much here in the States. You know, they get inside this cage and, you know, what does John say when he sees his dog? You know, he, you know <laughs> normally they reckon dogs more than they do people here in England. Right. Speaking of dogs. But that is where the style of Hard Day's Night comes in. You know, that is really and truly a music video. Yeah, it really is. You know, in a style that didn't quite exist in that fashion before. We're going to go dealing the cards to the beat of the song, and, and then the instruments just sort of show up. <laughs> yeah, Mal is around there somewhere. <laughs> I guess in that version, it's it's Norm and Shake. Yeah. November 63, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand was recorded, and that would, of course, solidify their presence throughout the Western world, at least. Yeah. Britain, United States, Canada. It kind of started it all. Stuff kept coming in, in a way. You know, they came and they were in the United States for... Well, they were in Paris for almost a month. Right. And then they were in the States for close to a month. Right. They still were cute kept getting news because it was the first week in April, basically while they're still filming, that they get the news that, oh, you have the, the top five spots on the American charts. It was just growing leaps and bounds. They filmed kind of really self-assured. By the time filming started, they were at the top of their game, and they yeah. didn't necessarily know that what they were doing making a film but it's like okay we can figure this out yeah you know, i'm really kind of always amazed at all the things that came together you know they come over to the united states and they're here for a little bit and they go back to do the film record their songs and george has this new 12-string rickenbacker which he had just been given during that stay in the states yeah and it's the sound of the soundtrack oh absolutely Hard Day's Night, that was the first album which would be entirely Lennon-McCartney, although it's strongly uh, leaning in Lennon's favor with, what, 10 Lennon songs and three McCartney songs? Yeah. Although some of those are true collaborations. Yeah. I've always found it interesting that the concert sequence ends with She Loves You, but it now actually sort of makes some sense because that was the hit which caused UA to decide, okay, we can do this. Right. We'll put up half a million dollars as a nod to that. They end the concert with that. Hers was like, uh, could we have the rights to that too? <laughs> yeah. But it, it's also a great way to end because, you know, the way that song ends on that chord, that's Beatlemania right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, which George Martin thought was corny and old fashioned. <laughs> he did. Um, I suppose in some respects it is, but it was perfect. And then climbed me into the helicopter. <laughs> and the pictures falling out of the helicopter as they fall to the ground. Yeah. Hey, Noam, you're a swine. 
<laughs> Richard Lester filmed in the style he did using multiple cameras because they didn't want to have to do too many takes. I don't know if things were quite as bad as as Lester says, where the only way they could get it was, was to feed them a line and have them say it back. You know, I think they were able to get through scenes. Yeah, probably. I mean, we don't know, but that may be how the style of dialogue, the, the rapid-fire one-liners sort of came about. But as far as when they were filming... I mean, lines, Ducky. Can you handle lines? Well, I'll have a bash. Good. Give him whatever it is they drink. A Coca-Rama? It doesn't seem like they're starting and stopping every couple of lines. Well, I'm sure someone will prove me wrong, but I'm thinking, surely... John's bathtub scene was not scripted because it sounds so much like John Lennon. I would be willing to bet that what is in the published script is, you know, John Adlib's dialogue in the bathtub. They probably did have the U-boat in there. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that it's not set up because obviously they they were working towards the gag, but I'm not sure that they really had to spoon feed every line. Which is the way Richard Lester likes to remember it. Yeah. You know, now, I do believe what they say on the DVD, what they, they talk about, the biggest issue was with the costuming, that they would constantly take away pieces of their costume and not bring them back. Right. Continuity is a big deal on film, because <laughs> you'll notice real quick that the clothes switch from scene to scene or don't cut together well. There's the one scene, uh, which is actually a stolen scene, where you see them driving away in the limo, and then they cut to a scene of them inside the limo. John goes from wearing a, a white shirt with a tie to a, to a turtleneck. To a black turtleneck. And yeah. that's because the second part of that scene was actually something they just captured as they were leaving through the gates of Twickenham. They had the camera on them, and it's like they were just goofing around. And, oh, well, that fits real well here. You know, one of the things I found interesting was Nick Lester remembering that you know, the way he shot it was different with the multi-cameras and the... He got uh, some sort of memo from the higher-ups that there's a scene, and I believe it's And I Love Her, where the camera pans and for a second or so is actually aimed right at a light, which is... It was the origin of the lens flare. Yes, and that's supposedly a no-no. Well, at the time it was. To make an immersive, professional movie, you did not have flare, until a revolution in movie making changed it. In the 1960s, new filmmakers wanted to show their movies weren't made in a box. They turned to flare to capture a documentary-like look. And so they wanted him, they were like, you can't do this. And he's like, I just did. Right. So that's kind of a Beatles thing, you know. Lennon did the same thing, or George Martin, because uh, Capital at first with the song Revolution was like, it's too distorted. It's like, we want the distortion. And then the other thing is that you had the French New Wave, you had those rapid cuts. Lester was very much aping that style, but it was a style that people in the States hadn't seen yet. Right. You know, Jules at Jim and, and those sort of French new wave cinema movies of the time and it's like what again the beatles thing is well these people are doing this we like this we're gonna go ahead and use it and turn it over to the masses (laughs) right and as we were saying with the should have known better you know the whole thing is really here is the future of music video but you could take the individual songs and they did and and you have videos you have you know each song has their their video, except well, I guess you can't buy me love. Well, it kind of does. I mean, you know, the, the whole the whole business of going up and down the stairs and then running around the field. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's the monkeys right there. And my favorite part of that, you got the shot of the shoes, and then you've got Dick Lester with a coat over his head playing John Lennon. Right. Because because one of the afternoons that they were filming, John had to go off to the Foils luncheon to pick up an award for his book. It caused a little controversy. You got a lucky face. Right. And if you didn't know, it's pretty amazing to realize that that is two separate sites filmed six weeks apart. Because they really filmed part of it at the beginning and then part of it at the end of shooting. But it cuts together so perfectly. Yeah, it has a great look. All the things that came together, the story was good. It certainly got the characteristics had to be cartoon-like. They're drawn in broad strokes, but you do get kind of 
the idea of their characters. Well, and this is really the first time that, that we actually got that. I mean, you know, we got a little bit in sort of press conferences and the TV appearances, not so much here in the States. I mean, you know, we really only ever had Sullivan at that point. Uh, you know, the British had had some variety shows, done a little bit of comedy in Moonlight Bay. and They also had Saturday Club and... You know, well, the, the radio shows, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and that was, again, a form of what Beatlemania was in Britain that we didn't have. That was a point that you made, was that the film hit very differently here than it did back home. Even though it was written for a British audience, it had lo- much larger effect here. It really sort of solidified Beatlemania in the States. Yes, I have a distinct memory of being very excited to go see A Hard Day's Night in the theaters when it was released. And so I went and I guess I I was about 10 years old. Went with my older sister who ditched me early. Was it here in Houston? No, it was um, out in West Texas. Okay. Went to the theater and was totally amazed whenever there was like a close-up of Paul or certainly during the songs, the girls in the theater screamed like it was the Ed Sullivan Theater. And even at nine, I could roll my eyes. (laughs) That's the first time we ever got a real good look at them. Absolutely. We'd had photographs and television was a little 10-inch black and white thing. Right. And while this was black and white, they were up there larger than life on the movie screen. Absolutely. And, And basically being who we fantasized they were. From the very beginning, the script brings you in and it's like, you know, welcome to our world. It's not like, oh, you're on the outside. You're just sort of watching us do our thing. You know, here, come on in. Hang with us. <laughs> right. What happened when the, the Beatles hit at the beginning of the year, in 64, records were being played. People were talking about them a lot. Schools. And we were inundated by teenage magazines which already were around covering Paul Peterson and all the the cute boys on TV. But then suddenly all you could find were Beatle magazines. And so you've got a clearer view of them, more pictures, more copies of interviews that they'd given in Britain. But it was the movie Hard Day's Night that whatever fantasy you had built up in your head because you'd been reading these magazines was now on the big screen and it hit every note for me (laughs) and it was also acceptable to the adults sure they'd broken through a little bit with the people in charge of the the tv when paul did till there was you but here the parents were oh okay this is pretty okay you know i can let my kids listen to these guys i was very happy when my mother heard and i love her and said that's beautiful song and I thought, yeah, they could do that. <laughs> and the reaction from even the hardened press, the infamous Andrew Saris review from The Village Voice, I, w- I want to read just the last paragraph here because it tells you something about what people thought before and after Hard Day's Night of the Beatles. They take themselves seriously enough, all right. It is their middle-aged admirers and detractors that they don't take too seriously. The Beatles are a sly bunch of anti-establishment anarchists, but they are too slick to tip their hand to the authorities. People who have watched them handle their fans in the press tell me that they make Sinatra and his clan look like a bunch of rubes at a county fair. Of course, they have been shrewdly promoted, and a great deal of the hysteria surrounding them has been rigged with classic fakery and exaggeration. They may not be worth a paragraph in six months, but right now their entertaining message seems to be that everyone is people. Beatles and squealing sub-adolescents as much as Negroes and women and so-called senior citizens, and that however much alike people, in quotes, may look in a group or a mass or a stereotype, there is in each soul a unique and irreducible individuality. If that's not taking them seriously, I don't know what. (laughs) It's pretty amazing that this film, which was explicitly not 
written for film critics that one of the most respected critics of the time would call this the Citizen Kane of jukebox musicals. Yeah, they didn't mean it to be necessarily. But at that point, the realization that this was art, this was something, it wasn't a teenage exploitation film. Well, it's that same bit of magic that the Beatles would bring to really a whole lot of things. Right. They came up with something really, really good. They had a group of people around them. But they were in front of the camera. They had to make it real. It was their film. Ultimately, the success or failure lay on their shoulders. Yeah. And to this day, it's, it's a quotable film. What are you messing around with that boat for? There's a car waiting. Come on. He's very fussy about his drums, you know. They loom large in his legend. You're a swan. Hey! Who's that little old man? Well, who is he? He belongs to Paul. The whole grandfather character, it's a brilliant move making the antagonist be the so-called adult, the (laughs) grown-up. Right. Not to mention the fact that Wilfred Ramble was only about 30 years older than Paul when they made Hard Day's Night. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty impressive. And Paul today looks better than Wilfred Ramble did in... (laughs) Back then, yeah, it's true. For best scoring of music, adaptation or treatment are George Martin for A Hard Day's Night. And Alan Owen did actually get a nomination for an Academy Award in 1965. He didn't win, but just the fact that it got a nomination is pretty amazing. Yeah. The nominees for best story and screenplay written directly for the screen are story and screenplay for Alan by... Excuse me, Alan. <laughs> By Alan Owen for A Hard Day's Night. Funny how it all seemed to come together so well. It was the biggest commercial for the Beatles you could have. Fun, and entertaining, and cheeky. Help is on the way. Help! Help is the new Beatles movie. We're telling you about it now because it took you so long to get down to see A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles' first movie. Once you were there, you laughed just as hard as any of the critics, including your own sons and daughters. So here's our helpful hint for troubled grown-ups. See Help. It's in color. It's a United Artists release. It's got spine-tickling adventures, side-tingling laughter, and a Beatles eye view of this much too serious world. So be the first adult in your group to seek help from the Beatles. Then, recommend to the kids. And the spots that would come out the next year for help, where it's like, remember last year? Remember you weren't certain about a hard day's night? Well, help is going to be just the same thing. Go go and take your kids down to them. And you may even want to stick around and see it too. Right. As with everything else, Beatles, the success of a hard day's night would launch several vaguely similar enterprises. The closest is probably ferry across the Mersey. It's Jerry and the Pacemakers, and they aren't just all right. They're terrific in their first full-length motion picture. Right. It is good because it was filmed in Liverpool, and there are a lot of the Liverpool landmarks in the film, and, and Nems is there, and Brian actually appears. Come on down to the cavern where the young ones go. Swing to the beat of the Mersey sound. Join the ferry cross the Mersey for fast and furious fun. So ferry cross the Mersey. There was a competition between the pacemakers and the Beatles that I think Brian felt. If the Beatles are going to have a movie, Jerry needs to have one too, because he saw them as being, they'd had number one hits. It just doesn't work as well as Hard Day's Night at all. The dialogue is no good, and the pacemakers as characters are almost indistinguishable from each other. Yeah. Jerry's out front, and then it just ends. It's exactly what John Lennon was saying. You know, it ends in this this big contest to get a to get a contract, and, and then there's this weird chase that they have to get back to the cavern at the very end. It's okay, great. Here's the pacemakers actually in the cavern, but why did we need the last fifteen minutes? Well, the way you just described it, I'm thinking. Well, now we know where the rejected script went. <laughs> there you go. It is of interest to us, 
just because here was Liverpool in 1964. You, you get a yeah. lot of that. Yeah. But it's not a very good film. Which actually makes it closer to the documentary. Because <laughs> it's like, that's why you would watch it, is because of the scenes, and, you know. But as a storyline or anything, it's really not that great. Uh, the Day Park Five released a film in... Again, unlike Hard Day's Night, it had different titles uh, in Britain and in the States. It was it was Catch Us If You Can in the UK, and uh, they had to make it something more exciting. So it was having a wild weekend here in the States. Yeah, stupid, <laughs> uh, I think. Catch Us If You Can was a hit record. You know, why not name your movie after your hit record? The only vaguely interesting thing about uh, the DC5 film is that they are playing characters. They're not actually playing the, the Dave Clark Five. Right. The music is still there in the soundtrack, and they're playing it, but there's none of this faux performance like you get in Hard Day's Night. Yeah. You know, one of the things about Help is that you're having to make a movie of an artificial construct. Once you've done a Hard Day's Night, what are you going to do next? Being the Beatles. All of their movies, yeah. they were the Beatles, kind of. And Yellow Submarine works because of animation. I don't know how they could have necessarily done what Dick Lester was thinking for Help any better than how they did it. I think we all like Help but don't love it. It's good. It's fun. It's certainly watchable. I mean, any Beatles is, is better than not spending 90 minutes with the Fabs. Right, but right. it's also very clear that they, as a foursome, were not interested in what they were doing so much. Yeah. You know, they're very much relying on Victor Spinetti to carry them through this feature. I think they put themselves in the hands of a team with a hard day's night, but with help, as I said, it's just kind of how do you do a movie about the Beatles and these four guys still playing themselves in effect and make a coherent story out of it. Yeah. And that may be the question of why Brian didn't try and shape help a little bit more than he did. Yeah. He is the one that really could have had a bit more of a role in the script and in the final product. There's some good actors in it, not us, because, you know, we don't act, we just sort of yourself. do what we can, you know. It's quite hard for me to film that. Leo McKern's exceptional in it, and so is uh, Victor Spinetti and Roy Kinnear, the thin and the fat fella, they're good together. The James Bond thing, you know, foreign spies in effect. Boris and Natasha. <laughs> right. And good thing, because we probably would have never had any of George's sitar music without help. But it's not a great story. No, but it doesn't have to be. No. I mean, it served its purpose. We were all getting into potted about the same time they were. <laughs> the boomers were hitting, you know, 15 and 16 years old and discovering these substances. And it's like, help is a lot funnier if you're stoned. Yeah. Although I didn't know that at the time. I was only 11. <laughs> okay. But you get what I'm saying. I, of course, that was, that was years and years before I was born. <laughs> right. Right. It is funnier if you're stoned. So, yeah, you saw Hard Day's Night in the theater. The first time I saw Hard Day's Night was on TV. And so, as we had mentioned, Walter Shenson actually had the rights to both Hard Day's Night and Help revert to him. And really up through about 1981, you could regularly see both of those films in movie packages that went around to the million-dollar movie, as it were. Yeah. When you said you saw it on TV, was that with commercials? That was with commercials. That would have been like 1977, 1978 would be the first time I saw it. Okay. That's about the time I saw Magical Mystery Tour the first time. So by 68, just around Yellow Submarine, was when they premiered Hard Day's Night on NBC. So, you know, NBC's big thing was, you know, we were all in color and they had they had the Peacock logo. Yeah. So before the Hard Day's Night is, you know, coming to you in living black and white. <laughs> and there was a penguin. <laughs> With the peacock feathers that... Somewhere in my vast log of tapes, I have the entire soundtrack of A Hard Day's Night on Reel to Reel that I recorded off the television. I don't know why, but I did. For a long time, that was a pretty valuable thing to have because the mono mixes weren't around anywhere. <laughs> right. Now we actually 
have them or at least have uh, reproductions of them. And they are significantly different. The The biggest difference was that they never quite got the speed correction right for, for us here in the States because they had altered the film speed to make the TVs sync up. Because otherwise you would get these rolling lines on the TV when you filmed a TV screen or a monitor. Huh. It was 24 frames per second versus 25 frames per second. So it was ever so slightly slow here in the States. <laughs> and it wasn't until the first of the Criterion reissues that we actually got it at the correct speed. I didn't know that. There's a reason for you to, to go and find your tape <laughs> should you want to. Although I, I've got digital copies of the soundtrack <laughs> through the ages as it's changed. But that's always been kind of an interesting little tidbit about yeah, pretty wild. The, the TV airings. And uh, so Hard Day's Night was quite an accomplishment. It was. And I was going to mention one other thing that uh, I remember it just being touted very much at the time was that this the album a hard day's night the fact that it was all written by Lennon mccartney and that was just something that was in all the articles it was usually complimentary of their writing but the fact that they had written all of it and it's really where you really became aware of this songwriting duo this one was all them yeah, I mean, the most we got pre-Hard Day's Night was, oh, well, who writes the lyrics and who writes the music? And it's like, then they had to explain, no, we, we both write both. It wasn't a question of the volume of songs that they would be releasing and the quality of that volume. There were a lot of singles coming out. Hard Day's Night had singles of And I Love Her and If I Fell and I'll Cry Instead. As you mentioned, you know, it was able to sell both on UA and, you know, Capital had something new, and then Capital also had the ability to release the singles. So it ended up being just like, what, one or two songs didn't get released on yeah, as a single. Capital? Oh, yeah. Either as a single or, or on something new. Yeah. From the Hard Day's Night album. UA may have gotten a, a smart move. We can, we'll, we'll release an album. We get a soundtrack album, but you guys can release it too. Yeah, it was all very confusing in a way at the time because Beatles 65 came out around all that so you had something new in beetle 65 the whole thing with vj it was all very confusing to a, a young kid no one was telling you here's what is actually going on you were just voracious you know anything that had beetles on it music or whatever you know it was and that was what was known in the industry that's why they put out all these horrendous beat bugs and, and uh, pete bess album if it, if it had beetles on it a lot of times you didn't know what it was. It just said Beatles. Okay. And even if you did know what it was, that didn't stop your grandmother from saying, oh, he likes those Beatles. This looks like it. Exactly. Well, it's a, a truism of my life that I have, been, because it's known that I like the Beatles, I have been given more stuff than I ever collected on my own. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. So let's see. Just one more week until the Let It Be box. That is just incredible that it's that close. I'm, I'm so looking forward to it all. I mean, now we're going into the holiday season. We'll be able to see Peter Jackson's thing before too long. Pretty amazing that we've, we've hit this point. And like I say, so, sometime early next year, we are going to get the highest resolution copy of Hard Day's Night, the 4K release from, from the good folks at Criterion. And that in and of itself is... Uh, something that I consider kind of amazing. You know, Criterion considers themselves the keeper of the best versions of the best films. And there in the middle of it is Hard Day's Night. <laughs> Casablanca and Citizen Kane and and Hard Day's Night. Yeah, but don't get yourself. Don't think this is the last form you'll see. It's, there'll be something out in 10 years to make you go, holy mackerel. Well, I mean, you know, at that point, they can take the original negatives and beam it into our brains. But... <laughs> See, or it'll be on an Oculus. You, <laughs> you can be in a hard day's night. Well, I mean, that that was what I said. You know, that's <laughs> what the script does is it brings you in and says, you know, <laughs> you too can be sitting on the train hanging out. I, I would take being in black and white for an hour and a half to, to <laughs> hang out with Patty Boyd for a little while. Well, yeah. Or even the uh, the train car, you know, 
We, we cram a few more people in there. There you go. One more topic to figure out. We'll 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 manage that. We'll be around uh, next week, and then then into let it be. Into let it be. It's because we just won't let it be. <laughs> all right. Talk to you all next week. Bye bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Dick Lester said, you've got to get stuff when they're playing these numbers. So get a couple of those new 10 to 1 zoom lenses and just do what you think. So it gave us total freedom because you've got to remember that, uh, that in those days there was no video assist or anything like that. You were the director's eyes, you know, you were doing it and nobody else saw it until tomorrow. To be left to your own devices and get really good stuff, it was terrific. You know, pulling focus across guitar strings and all that sort of stuff. We established a style that's still used today when they photograph pop groups. You know, it's the best way of doing it. You know, get all the hand movements and stuff like that. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.